0: This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. This week we've got on the great historian Jack Chen, who's one of the senior-most people working on anti-Asian racism in America. Uh, We're very lucky to have him. We booked him a while ago. It's unfortunate coincidence that it happened the week after Atlanta, but it's also going to be really instructive. So we're going to jump right into it. We're going to learn a lot on this one. Let's go.
1: And before you start, I would just like to say, Jack, you have, you will take the trophy home for most professorial office I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, right. That is, that's a, you can tell
0: you're, you've done some research. Yeah, that's a thing of beauty in the background there. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. (laughs) It's fake, right? (laughs) All right. So um, today we are very excited and honored to have on Jack Chen. Uh, who's a historian, curator, writer, and self-described dumpster diver devoted to anti-racist, anti-colonialist, democratic, participatory storytelling, um, scholarship, opening up archives and museums, and also classrooms to, to the stories and sort of realities of people who have been deemed in various ways excluded and unfit for the sort of master historical narratives Um, He's the inaugural Clement A. Price Professor of Public History and Humanities at Rutgers University in Newark, um, and the director of the Clement Price Institute on Ethnicity, Culture and Modern Experience. Um, He's published uh, an important book um, called Yellow Peril, uh, an archive of anti-Asian fear that came out in 2014. Um, and in 1996, he founded the APA Studies, Pro, uh, Studies Program, the Asian Pacific American Studies Program and Institute Research Collections at New York University. Um, and in 1980, uh, in addition, he co-founded the Museum of Chinese in America. Um, there's many other things we can we can get into. Jack is is, is a very busy guy um, and has many contributions. Um, so Jack, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Um, so, you know, in the wake, um, well, let me just start with a sort of basic question I have about your work, um, in, in your book. Um, so in the wake of the massacre in Atlanta last week, we've thankfully seen, um, you know, a focus on anti-Asian racism and even had some historical perspective provided by specialists on this. And while it's absolutely critical to learn this history that goes back, you know, well into the middle decades of the 19th century uh, to confront it, to think through it, what can sometimes happen in such moments, I think, is the emergence of a sort of bullet point list of racist attacks um, that despite good intentions um, has the paradoxical effect of sort of neutralizing the moral shock that one might expect from learning about this. And it, at its worst, it can turn into articles sort of listicles of atrocity, right? That that really sort of desensitize. And this is why I find your book to be so instructive because, and again, I'm a historian. I mean, I'm not, I'm definitely not saying that the event history of anti-Asian racism is not important. It certainly is and should be studied. But I find your book really instructive because it's so different. Um, You dig into the ideological origins of what you call yellow parallelism. And you really bring together a lot of different strains of thought that concern, you know, the fear, anxiety, hatred, cultural chauvinism, um, to illustrate a sort of the biography of this idea. Um, and it's you know permutations over time. So could you talk a little bit about this idea of yellow peril, where it came from, how it's evolved? And then you know one of your major questions of the book is that how has it survived um, in our discourse when overt racism is supposed to be not okay?
2: Yeah, well, thanks for that question because I think that is a problem with contemporary journalistic uh, coverage, especially when our disruptions, that are ever accelerating now. Um, obviously, from one day to the next, from one week to the next, there's some new disruption that totally shifts our focus and gets us to think about something totally different, as if somehow what had happened last week has gone. right. And uh, so part of what um, I try to do as a historian is not so much get so focused on the past that it we lose any sense of how it has ongoing impacts today, but to really uh, think of the questions that emerge in the present and how we can actually help to unpack them and understand them uh, with historical insights. And since anti-Asian fear, uh, fear of Asians, fear of of the yellow people, hordes, uh, I could just go on and on with some key words and uh, different images will start popping up in, uh, anybody who's in who's part of the West, but also in particular part of um, U.S. culture, film culture, media culture, newspaper culture, I would frame that all as being part of a, the political culture of the Western imaginary, but also of the U.S. Um, experience. So that um, part of what I'm trying to do is to look at the patterns that the, that link the present with that past and how far back can we go? So in some ways, I'm a bit like a genealogist. I'm a bit like an archeologist. I'm looking, or maybe I'm a person who's like digging at the roots of, of a tree that then extend uh, to a whole forest. Um, so there's ways of trying to do that and excavating and surfacing that. Uh, so the book, um, yellow peril exclamation mark, don't forget the exclamation right. mark, is right. really about um, uh, doing that in a way that hopefully is not re-traumatizing and not uh, simply re-inscribing the kinds of patterns of fear and horror that people have, but doing it in a lighter way that has some some humor because a lot of the graphics in there are just kind of outrageous and crazy. Yeah from contemporary eyes but we can see how the patterns that have happened over time uh tracing back through the united states but tracing back into european kinds of notions of orientalism um, then actually begin to uh, help us understand why yellow itself is a deeply constructed uh, morphing mutating kind of uh, image um, so that from the European point of view, uh, Jews were yellow. Eastern European Jews were yellow. Uh, from the European point of view, depending on what part of Europe, the Arab uh, was yellow. Right. So even just tracing the idea of yellow and how that changes over time as Western colonialism, as Western trade begins to spread further and further east to uh, what we now call as the Far East, But of course, from the point of view of the United States, they're not East, they're West, right? So these kinds of constructions are highly situational and highly historical. So I'm really trying to kind of play with all that. And can we get back to some kind of key moment? Is there a smoking gun moment or not, right? Um, In terms of these constructions and how they then directly have an impact on us today, not just in terms of anti-Chinese or anti-East Asian, Violence and stereotyping, but also in terms of the kind of romantic notions that people have about the East, uh, but then also in terms of South Asians, um, middle uh, Central Asians, but also who whom we can call Western Asians, right? So these are these are um, highly problematic kind of references and agglomerations. Uh, Asia, after all, is such a huge area, right? Um, right. How can we begin to understand these? Uh, historical and cultural constructions and how they continue to have an impact on us today.
0: Great, great. So this argument about, you know, the the ism part of yellow peril, right? Could you, could you talk about what that is that, because it's like, it's an ideology, right? It's an ideology of looking at, and by virtue of looking, then creating and marking difference, right? Um, That, Uh, so it's sort of productive in that sense, right? And so that, that by virtue of looking at the world in a certain way, you're producing certain categories and then those categories are then put in a hierarchy and, you know, and hierarchy of fear and hierarchy of attractiveness, whatever it may be. Um, how does that sort of operate over time? And do you see sort of, what are like the most relevant contemporary instances of it? Um, and they don't even have to be spectacular, right? They can be these, these, you talk about in your book, these sort of lightning flashes that come that sort of remind us that the past is present. Um, and could you just talk about, you know, even in everyday life where that surfaces?
2: Oh boy, yeah. So um, that, what we can call an archive of, ins- of instances is just, um, it, it's an everything. Uh, because it is so deeply ingrained in the American political culture and the commercial culture. Um, So we can just watch. I mean, so I I do want to kind of start out maybe with not so much the fear and the paranoia and the, um, the violence part, just to kind of surface what's more visible in terms of how Orientalism has actually manifested in the United States. So Edward Said is the the kind of father really of understanding. I mean, the godfather of understanding this kind of critical practice as it's played out in the so-called West itself is a construction. So who counts as being part of the West, but in terms of a way of knowing and a way of uh, imagining the orient, orient, excuse me, you can imagine the British museum and, uh, or the, uh, or the kind of classification systems of Oriental studies. And uh, so really we're talking about academia and museums and ways of knowing the other. And the other can be something that's romanticized or something used as a way to invoke fear, right? So the romantic other oftentimes was represented in incredible uh, paintings of uh, Jerome, the French artist, for example, who represented the um, uh, the places in which uh, these uh, powerful, wealthy merchants uh, and uh, you know, uh, in the Middle East, uh, with very colorful tiles. I mean, we could just kind of identify paintings, you know, in which there would be uh, harems of women, for example. Um, now how much that actually mapped with actual reality. Uh, It doesn't matter so much as the romantic kind of representation of this other that people living in uh, cold, cold London in the middle of winter or in Paris um, would use to imagine themselves transported over there. Uh, So there's that kind of representation that was in the early days of of uh, European interaction with Arab cultures, for example, that in some ways begins to define Orientalism in this romantic way. But of course, the way we tend to think of othering is in terms of this dangerous, uh, dangerous other who is going to come and attack us, and take take our so-called women, and take our homes, and basically um, displace us and disrupt us from any sense of safety or happiness, right? Um, So that's a very particular form of fear formation that's uh, projected onto the other. And therefore the other represents the fear that one may have within oneself or within one's culture and the insecurity that, people feel being projected onto this outside enemy who's going to come and basically steal everything we value. Right? So I think that's the more typical way in which, which in which we think of this. So therefore getting back to the Atlantic shootings, uh, that's an example in which these, uh, someone who apparently is a part of a fairly strict kind of a religious group um, that's really saying no sex, and sexual feelings is absolutely dangerous. So in some ways this goes back to kind of a Calvinist and Puritan kind of notion of self-control and needing to become uh, such a productive member of a community that one cannot allow uh, human urges, uh, pleasures, dancing. Um, uh, the pleasure of eating food, you know, these kinds of things uh, get in the way of one becoming a productive member of a group, right? So that kind of contemporary version of something that's deeply within uh, the Northeast Calvinist uh, settler colonial culture, right, is something that continues on as people try to imagine how can they become more pure? Uh, resolve issues and troubles that they may be having at home or in their community and they look for a discipline such as a very authoritarian and very structured kind of uh, religious group that says if you just follow these rules and you control yourself and discipline yourself then you'll be okay right so these could be people who are just troubled and having a tough time with adolescence, which you know of course is something that we all went through, right? right. But then finding that kind of external structure then also forces one to create these very tight boundaries with one oneself and trying to be good. And by doing that, uh, oftentimes people who then say, "Well, I can't do that, I have to go out and have some kind of relationship." Um, and oftentimes that's then done in a way that then the only alternative is not to have a, a, re- a relationship with a with another human being, but to go through some kind of commercial process of finding services in which that can happen. So that seems to have been part of the dynamic of both introjection. What psychoanalysts will call internalizing introjection, introjecting these kinds of binaries and conflicts, and then projecting them outwards, so that. This person clearly uh, drove around and targeted sites in the suburbs outlying areas of Atlanta looking for Asian uh, massage parlors or sex clubs. So it wasn't just because he, had, he was a sex addict. This is intersected with the fact that uh, in this country, Uh, In the wars that have happened in Asia, we can think of Korea, we can think of Vietnam, we can think of any place that there's a U.S. military base, Japan. You had these situations in which the ways in which this concentration of largely white men until the military became integrated more, uh, looking for pleasure in these uh, zones that became secured uh, to have uh, sex with, um, with Asian women. So we have a deep kind of connection between the domestic dynamics of how this gets played out and the fantasies that people have for having some kind of outlet, right, and military zones, but also in terms of the kind of um, racialized, gendered, sexualized imagination of uh, the American white male. How do you then find a way in which you can find some peace and satisfaction, right? So there are these very complicated dynamics that are very historical, but then get played out in the everyday manners with regular folks. You know? So right. I, I hope that's some kind of a sense of how we can start connecting the dots that happen yeah,
0: recurrently. Ab- right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's really interesting. But it, what, drew me to this question about sort of linking um, Atlanta and, and versus the obvious because there's there's a debate in the press right there's a debate in the press about how to sort of cover this and so yesterday Brett Stevens uh, the journalist and I always like to uh, underline the fact that the climate denier um, who is uh, the New York, is New York Times has given a position in their influential op-ed section, Yesterday, he published an op-ed entitled The Atlanta Massacre and Media's Morality Plays. And he's arguing that journalists just need to, you know, just the facts, ma'am, kind of approach um, and not to, quote unquote, as he says, play into fears. Now, that's a subtitle uh, in your book, (laughs) Archive of Anti-Asian Fear, right? But in this case, uh, Stevens is claiming that the fears are an overblown worry about white supremacy and racism. Um, And instead of following the sort of murderer state of mode state motive of just like, this is my, you know, sexual compulsions run amok. Um, And so what do you think about this, that, you know, the paper of record um, provides a perch for that type of, you know, articulation of this violence, which you've, you've, you know, rightly put into this context where these zones of violence of US military bases also are places that produce a sort of industry of sex work and exploitation. Uh, and then, you know, the sex work and exploitation industry in America then becomes a zone of violence. Um, what what do you say to that? I mean? Does that I was so angered by reading that? I was just wondering what your, your response to that would be. Well, um,
2: I did not read that. I, I so um, but that itself falls into a pattern itself. Um, there is a deep pattern of American innocence uh, that is proclaimed generation after generation, and it denies um, the realities that are around one and deep, deeply soaked in the weekly, if not everyday, experience of Americans. But it's actually very hard to look at this stuff. It's very hard to kind of reckon with the complex, the, the complex ways in which the United States not only handles its own affairs as it expanded into the continent and treated indigenous peoples and enslaved peoples. I mean, I, we can go over that. I don't need to kind of go over that. It's very complex for us to grapple with that and to come to terms with that. But then also to understand that we have this international role in which this kind of violence happens. So the innocent, in some ways, the the kind of naivete and, and innocence that's constantly reiterated about the United States and our culture. Is that, well, we don't intend to do these things. We may have done it but inadvertently, but this is not our intention. you know We're just having a problem, we're having a bad day. That kind of uh, profession has itself been a historical phenomenon. Uh, and we need to understand that itself. And it's really an inability to kind of see and grapple with uh, and be sensitive to uh, what we're actually doing around us right so it's a bit like um, it, it's a bit like uh, a bull in a china shop and and the bull is saying well no i I was just buying a pack of cigarettes you know <laughs> I, I didn't <laughs> I didn't knock that over you know um, it wasn't my intention so uh, you know we can we can talk more about that but I just want to kind of maybe point that out
1: yeah great
0: Tony you want to jump in here sure i'd
1: love to um i've got a couple questions they're all kind of in the same area but i'll start with this a very simple question um when did um people of color and asians become a thing um has it always been a thing i have grown up um and i have have no i'm not ashamed to admit this i when i think of people of color which could be part of the problem. I don't typically think of Asian. I think of actual skin color and that's, what's been put in my head growing up in this country. So this idea, you know, I had this talk last night with my, with my partner and we were just talking about it. And I was like, I know I've just never, when I think of people of color, I typically think of brown skin. Um, when when did that start becoming a thing? And do Asians consider themselves people of color?
2: Uh, great question. I appreciate, you know, the honesty of your asking that. Uh, yeah. That's the only way we're going to get somewhere. But Tony, I've got to ask you, did you read comic books?
1: I did read comic books, yes.
2: And and so when you think of comic books, what are the different colors that were used in Marvel or DC or whatever you're... You're watching uh, to represent people,
1: right? Yeah, uh,
2: kind of white and brown. And did you have the chance to? I, I may be dating myself, but I'm also a historian. So did you look at the Wonder Woman episodes around Egg Foo? Uh, okay, so this. <laughs> so, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> so Egg Foo was uh, like Humpty Dumpty, an egg, a big egg. Sure. With a a Fu Manchu mustache, and was very yellow uh, in the comic book yellow. That uh, so you may have not seen that, but maybe you're lucky that you did not see that.
1: (laughs) No, but but I've seen things of of Asians definitely being depicted as yellow for sure.
2: Yeah. So a lot of this is really, okay, so there's a self-identification part of your question of BIPOC or however we want to say it, people of color, that kind of thing. But then there's really, this is all a response in many ways to the racialization uh, representations and depictions, but also the real practices of power and um, differentiation and declaring that these people of this appearance or measurement are unfit, right? And this this is something that goes back in terms of um, American culture, really, to um, the formation of the nation. But certainly in terms of um, uh, how races are ordered in some kind of hierarchical way, whether it be three races of mankind or more commonly the five races of mankind, and these were classification systems that were set up in academia, and museums, in um, in uh, looking at uh, the hierarchy of uh, from um, the tiny squirrel or the tiny rat all the way up the, the chain to apes and, um, and then humankind and the, the rankings of humankind. So, so it goes deep in terms of the way in which uh, pigmentation and, and phenotype, the appearance of one person sure. or the shape of the skull was somehow associated with one's humanity or one's intelligence, right? So, so I'm just saying that it may not have been obvious, even growing up, because we don't necessarily notice these things. So I'm, I'm really, I'm just teasing, teasing you. Tony. No, no, I understand. You know, yeah, you know, yeah, of course. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's in the comic books. It's kind of mm-hmm. in the Kool-Aid. It's kind of uh, throughout the culture. Uh, if we look at old advertising, um, before people started protesting representations, then there's a lot of it there in the culture. If we look at um, older political cartoons uh, where blackface minstrelsy appears, you oftentimes will see somewhere in there some kind of Orientalist uh, kind of representation. If you look at the 19th century Frank Leslie's and, and um, other kinds of weekly illustrated uh, uh uh, newspapers that had lots of political caricatures, that's where you really see it. Because yes. these were the days in which people um, were not getting pushback and this was just considered the, the, the norm of political cartoons and the way um, uh, in, in terms of uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males could be represented and how they could represent the thuggish broguish Irish for example. Yeah. or the Italians, um, those who were considered uh, racially or ethnically other, right? So so it goes back, but I think as time moves on to the more contemporary period, in some ways, we've had the disservice of it being kind of uh, washed away, so that the actual political and um, economic and other kinds of disparities are not as obvious anymore, because everybody appears to be uh, happy and and uh, living together in suburbia and in the shopping mall. So what's the problem, right? So for example, uh, I recently had the chance of watching um, uh, Wonder Woman 1984, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of it's kind of asynchronous because the shopping mall scenes really are not quite accurate for, you know, 1984 shopping malls. But that shopping mall is one of those happy pluralist kind of places where people of color and... Everybody is all happily shopping away But then you have this act in which uh, the villains and Wonder Woman are kind of playing out the primary scene at the front stage But the backstage is really playing out this kind of really contemporary no notion of color blindness and diversity um, So I, I hope that gets kind of added a little bit. It
1: but, does yeah. it does and it leads me to my next question so I'm gonna I'm gonna remind us all of something that happened in the NBA a few years ago and then it's gonna lead into my question. So we're we're all familiar with Jeremy Lin, the um Asian basketball player, Chinese. Um he He's from Taiwan, know,
2: also, yeah. So just to complicate it a yep. little bit, yeah.
1: So yeah, complicated even more. So a few years back, Jeremy Lin came out in the season and had dreadlocks. Um Kenyon Martin, an African American basketball player had tweeted like this is ridiculous i can't believe the nets and his players are allowing this and jeremy lin responded and i'm going to read his response and, it, and it's going to lead into my question he said hey man it's all good you don't have to like my hair and definitely you're entitled to your opinion actually i'm legitimately grateful you shared it at the end of the day i appreciate that that i have dreads and you have chinese tattoos on your arms and i think that's a sign of respect and i think as minorities the more we appreciate each other's cultures the more we influence mainstream society. Thanks for everything you did for for the nets and the hoops. I had your poster on my wall growing up. And I remember being like, oh, my God, like this is the problem that we don't. None of us. I, I mean, uh, that's a general statement, but a lot of us, we just don't consider. The place of the Asians in America, because we've had you touched on it. We've had so many, so many other atrocity, atrocities here with Native Americans, with black, uh, with gay rights, with I mean, the list goes on. And somehow I wonder if it's the culture behind Asian parenting. Um, you know, a lot of my friends, I find it to be a new thing. I'm 40 years old. I don't remember the growing up with the Asian pride, like the marching in the streets and the, um, you know, my friends, my friends are almost growing up in school. I went to school in, in Princeton high school and we had a, a large Asian um, population. And I remember it being like pushed down. And I don't know if that's a thing of parenting. Um, You know, I know in my own family, when my when my great grandparents came here, you kind of had to wash yourself of being Italian because they were kind of considered people of color and it was washed. Nobody spoke Italian anymore. And later we got proud and I'm very proud to say I'm Italian. Now I kind of, for the first time in my life, see that happening now in the Asian culture. And I wonder, was it always there and it's just not being covered or, um, is this a new thing with this new, you know, media savvy youth that are like taking back their culture and pride?
2: Wow, that's a that's a really great series of questions. Uh, let me just first note that um, that as the British began to decide that they did not want to continue slavery in the Caribbean, for example, yeah, uh, then they started recruiting. Uh, South Asians and Chinese to be uh, contract laborers, to replace the uh, sl- enslaved workers to these same places. And in these very same places, such as Cuba and other places like that, you actually had, um, you know, it, it, for, so that was a horrendous experience, lots of suicide, uh, really seven-year contracts, unbeknownst to people who were basically, uh, quote-unquote, shanghai onto these boats and taken on boats that had been used in the slave trade to actually transport indentured, uh, enslaved, more or less quasi enslaved people into places like Peru and, 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 um, and also British possessions and all that. Okay. So that we actually did have, okay. Um, intermingling and inter, uh, and, and creating new families and new people in these colonial settings in which, um, uh, Chinese and African Americans and and uh, Indigenous peoples actually did um, create new combinations of cultures and people, uh, so that so that that's something that's still evident in the Caribbean today and other places and especially in port cultures today. Now, so I just want to kind of get back to the kind of hair question and the cultural borrowing and the cultural yes. intermingling, because um, if we look at, for example, the origins of hip hop culture and hip hop sound, you know in, for example, in the South Bronx, some of those sound systems go back to the Caribbean in which uh, young Chinese were involved in creating the sound systems, uh, you know, and they, they happen to be the sons of the Chinese uh, corner shop um, that actually then got involved in the music culture as it was emerging in, um, in the Caribbean, for example. So there's a lot more of that history that we just don't know about. So that's in part speaking to your point. But also to say that the uh, Asian Pride movement actually did happen, but I think you're a little too young to have been uh, aware of it. But also, it wasn't really talked about much. It wasn't uh, right. very commonly known. But um, you know, just to just to go back because I am I am older. Um, I remember when the Panthers, or the Black Panthers, um, in Oakland, but also in many chapters around the country, um, actually. Uh, had an active connection uh and were actively connecting to uh, asian cultures Mm. Um, some of it was through uh for example bruce lee you know the the fantastic bruce lee who who inspired um uh, you know kind of uh, men of color around the world um in thinking that um, uh, being represented in the films in which is the white guy who is always you know the hero, you know, from Tarzan, you know, to everything else, you know, that we can imagine in American popular culture. I mean, so we're dating ourselves, but we're going back to that time. So Bruce Lee appearing on the screens and Bruce Lee is someone who could not get hired uh, in Hollywood or could not uh, play the role that he had written himself into in the, um, in the green Hornet, right. He was not able to get that job, right. Or, or in the, um, excuse me, I, he, he wasn't able to get the job in. Um, oh shit! I'm trying to remember the name of the um, David Carradine uh, TV show. Um, do you remember that? In which it was a chi- he David Carradine played a mixed Chinese man in the American West. Um, I think it was called Kung Fu. It was called Kung Fu, maybe. I, you know, but in any case, Bruce Lee could not get these roles that he actually had been involved in forming. Okay. In Hollywood at the time. So he had to go to Hong Kong to make these um, films and these films were kind of coming out of kind of a Hong Kong popular culture in which they started bringing in uh, various kinds of uh, bad guys other than Chinese bad guys. And you start getting this kind of global resonance of these really kind of, you know, early films that were only made so well, But uh, the pride that he represented actually did echo to many, many groups of people, mainly men, you know, because it's such a male thing, you know. But um, it very much echoed a lot of what began to happen, let's say, even as early in the 1950s when the Bandung Conference happened in Indonesia, as really all the non aligned nations who were protesting colonialism were starting to kind of push to organize resistance movements of various kinds. Uh, when that conference got together, in some ways, you had also this emergence of uh, really um, uh, of of, of, uh, of, uh, of African, Asian, Latin American uh, cultures who uh, wanted to begin to identify with each other as a way to organize against the massive powers and the massive um, arms and battleships that the european and u.s countries had so in some ways this kind of bipoc question that was raised earlier but also the question of people of color raised you know raised just now this is something that has been in the making as a response to colonialism as a response to basically you know we get the pope uh, declaring right at, uh, right before Columbus starts sailing you know, around looking for <laughs> Asia and kind of bumping into the Caribbean and, and naming it the Indies, right? Before that happens, the Pope declares that the doctrine of discovery is something that any European nation that plants a flag, any Christian nation, I should say, that plants a flag in anywhere around the world uh, can, can claim that nation, right? So colonialism really comes out of that. And the response to that um, really emerges as colonialism plays itself out in different locations around the world. Um, So the US is pretty complicated that way because we have both, let's say in the New York, New Jersey region, we have the process from 1609 onwards when Henry Hudson kind of plants the flag for, um, for the Dutch merchants, right? He's really saying that, well, we have these rights and we're gonna start trading we're gonna start extracting the pelts from beavers and we're gonna start trading with the local Lenape peoples. You know, That kind of process of dispossession is something that gets repeated place after place after place. And those basic experiences then get reproduced um, that link then the experience of um, uh, people in Indonesia. Uh, so that Manhattan, most people, most Americans don't know this, the island of Manhattan when the Dutch uh, really um, uh, claimed it, uh, was traded with the British uh, for the island of Banda in, the, in the Indonesia. And the island mm-hmm. of Banda was so valuable, it, Manhattan was not considered a very important place. It was really, you know, it wasn't making a lot of money, right? Banda, <laughs> on the other hand, was really valuable because it had nutmeg, and nutmeg was part of the kind of global international trade that was incredibly valuable. People would be willing to pay a lot of money for the nutmeg. So, so that, those kinds of histories we tend not to know about, but the Dutch had settled uh, the same shape of fortress uh, that was on lower Manhattan as in Banda. So we can look at them being twin islands, right? And that kind of history, which once we get outside of U.S. history, we begin to see the larger patterns of how this kind of thing got reproduced. So I'm just really giving you these kind of random examples to show how this stuff doesn't come out of nowhere. It actually comes out of global global forces and and war and violence that happened and people trying to figure out how to organize against it. So it does. So getting back to Princeton, right? (laughs) Um, Getting back to Princeton. So, yeah, I think um, so much of the identity of Asians who arrive in this country depends on when you arrive and what the immigration laws were. So most Americans also don't know that from 1882 to effectively, effectively 1965, Chinese were excluded and other Asians were added into the excluded categories were excluded from this country. So it wasn't until the 1965 Immigration Act that the, the immigration laws became de-racialized, but also de-eugenicized, because in fact, the European migrations from the 1924 immigration law so also limited the numbers of Jews, Italians, Greeks, everybody else. Uh, So it wasn't until after 65 that those laws were kind of opened up um, and that you started getting numbers of people um, really uh, coming in um, in ways that were more similar to the pre-24 immigration restrictions. So what you have then is that you finally have changing immigration laws, but then you have in the immigration policies written in, which is to this day, the preference for certain kinds of categories of immigrants. So let's say from from uh, from Hong Kong or from mainland China, you have a certain number of that can come over for family reunification. So if you have a family member here, they can petition for their mother or their sister or whatever to come over. But then you also have the professional category preferences, and it's really under the professional category preferences that a lot of the people who arrive after 65, but actually 68 is when the law goes into effect, begin to arrive because they're able to get uh, a preference job uh, so that they get hired by a high tech firm or engineering firm. And a lot of the people who are in Princeton really come out of that kind of time of migration. So in some ways you're seeing people who are newly arriving and actually have no understanding of American history. And I think of themselves as guests to this country and they arrive in Princeton, which is a very beautiful place. And there are not, uh, there are, of course, there are issues everywhere in the, in the world and everywhere in this country, but it appears to be the realization of the American dream, right? It's just, you know, it's just easy. Life is easy there. So I think people are just grateful, you know, to have yep. been extended um, these, um, uh, the ability to migrate, but also to, be able to become citizens. And they do not identify with the Chinatowns or the Japanese Americans and the historical experience of racialization. They oftentimes, because they're coming from a class of people who are more educated, you oftentimes will think that, oh, you know, we're not like them because they were just workers. Um, they didn't right. have education. So there's that kind of differentiation and disidentification that happens within the Asian community, but every time one of these massacres happen, one of these violations happen, or when doctor Won Wen-Ho Lee, who was accused of being the um, spy uh, at Los Alamos and then became really pardoned, but also the judge who convicted him apologized, right? And the New York Times also did a mea culpa. Uh, when Wen-Ho Lee, who's highly educated, like Jeremy Lin, from Taiwan, not from mainland China, right, uh, is accused of, of stealing the crown jewels of American nuclear arms, you know, for China, not for Taiwan, but for China, which is, you know, doesn't really make any sense if you actually know the, the <laughs> conflict between China and Taiwan, right? But he's accused of that. And that's when a lot of professionals, including those from Princeton, start seeing things differently because they realize yeah. actually, oh, wait a minute, we're now in the university or working in this major company, but now we're being surveilled because they're thinking that we could be fifth column spies, right? And the image of the spy is also something that that goes deep into the yellow peril kind of framework, right?
1: Fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's, those are a lot of uh, really tactile and tangible examples there. Um, one thing that, you know, as you were talking, what, what, it reminded me of in terms of the banding together of colonized peoples is the sort of the colonial world's response to the Japanese defeat of the Russians in 1905. <laughs> is that everybody's cheering, basically? You know, there, there's these moments where, um, you know, Western imperialism is smited, and suddenly most of the world is cheering right now. Which, of course, begs the question: Why is that? Because there's there's the racial order to the colonial order.
2: Um, and and uh, as Japan was starting to expand into Asia itself and the Pacific itself, their argument was: Well, we're you know we're not racist, and we're right. not right. Asian. We're not talking about a yellow yeah. peril. We are going to act, and we have to unite ourselves right we can fight against the western imperialists and those who are racist right so it all gets kind of jumbled together in yeah. Different ways yeah
0: it's not imperialism it's japanese it's a co-prosperity sphere yeah. <laughs> right um, so the one thing that you just you know talked about raises the question um, and particularly with with your interest in 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 public history uh, and cultural artifacts and things like that is this question um, of the line between uh, let's call it cultural borrowing versus cultural appropriation, which was sort of you know highlighted by by Tony's example with Jeremy Lin. Um, do you see that line or is that even a, a false distinction? I, I always sort of struggle with this, uh, the the idea of cultural appropriation, because effectively the more history you read, you realize that all of these cultures are utterly mixed up um, and uh, sort of sedimented upon one another. Uh, and it's only nationalism that tries to order them in very particular ways and say this culture is this and that culture is that. And therefore, there's a sort of language of ownership than then sort of commerce really, you know, um, that, that, that enters. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that.
2: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's also a deeply historical kind of question that goes all the way back, um, but also is omnipresent now, right? So the idea of cheap goods, for example, and the longer you live, the more you realize that it used to be cheap Japanese goods, but then they became uh, high end and everybody wanted those things so that it became cheap Hong Kong goods or cheap Taiwan goods or cheap South Korean goods, cheap Chinese goods. And um, I was just teaching, I've, I teach a course on uh, global warming and foodways. And one of my colleagues was, who's Colombian was saying, well, yeah, now, so Colombian, Colombia is now number three in terms of coffee because uh, besides Brazil, which is number one, who has become number two? And the, the answer is Vietnam right? Vietnam has become number two in coffee. And, but the Vietnamese coffee is considered cheap coffee, right? It's of lower Mm -hmm. quality mass produced. The, um, the mountainsides or the way they, where they, where they grow the coffee is not as steep so they can get machines in there and actually kind of shake them loose, like olive, you know, the olive machines that shake up olive trees and the olive, you know, the olives fall down. So, um, so, but this idea of cheapness and um, really unfair competition or cyborgs, you know, kind of being uh, less than human, being mechanical and working really fast. And therefore, it's unfair competition. Or the 19th century argument that Chinese workers uh, who came into California uh, worked longer hours and more days because their nerve endings were further away from the surface of the skin, so that they're physiologically. Unfair competition, right? Um, so these kinds of notions of of cheapness and and uh, being machine like um, and being simply able to copy, you know, this is also said when we started getting this the many generations of of Asian musicians doing classical music in New York, for example. And at first, it was said that oh, they really cannot embody. Uh, The proper kind of uh, violin playing techniques because they're simply copying they're imitating They don't actually feel it from their soul, right and being able to express it So this is a kind of trope that has been operating throughout time and it really does have to do with how Globalization actually operates and how in many ways when you have uh, cultures which are have been colonized or cultures that have infrastructures already in which they were creating lots of um goods uh, so we know that japan and china created lots of uh, luxury goods that the west wanted you know all those porcelains all those silks all those um furniture you know the tea all that kind of stuff the west wanted that right so in some ways the first exposure that the west had to the orient was really through the goods that they wanted and they they were luxury goods these were things that the porcelain was so fine, but it kept the heat so well, the West was not able, they were still working with redware. You know, they didn't really know how do you get from redware to porcelain, right? Uh, so they were, they created their own factories, Limoges and other kinds of European factories were created as a way of trying to imitate and emulate, emulate and imitate, right? The the Asian ways of of making porcelain. So copying and emulation, but also in the era of, industrialization and, and capitalism, uh, where the profits are can be made from basically pirating right, ideas so that the Americans, uh, the American colonists were going to England to try to figure out how do these cotton factories operate so we can take those ideas, basically pirate them and bring them back to create factories in the world. So you have that kind of pirating and spying, quite frankly, going on everywhere, right? (laughs) Because it's the nature of globalization. And once you start getting sectors in which there's a lot of money to be made, then that kind of priority starts infecting really how people are trying to imagine, well, if I just do this and go over there and introduce this over here, then I can make a lot of money, right? So that kind of logic of kind of colonial and imperial um, reproduction is kind of happening. So copying is always a part of that process. Um, so in the early days when the United States was really just, um, uh, organizing itself and was still very much a colonial culture. Uh, it was, uh, it was really things were being sent, um, to, uh, China, uh, so that, um, American, um, porcelain with, uh, so Chinese made porcelain could have American family Monograms on them, right? And then, um, uh, if if a family in in Boston wanted to have a painting of a patriarch done, it was they could oftentimes send the photograph uh, to Hong Kong and have a Chinese artist do it there. So, uh, so a lot of this was tied to the luxury market, but also that's where this notion of uh, less expensive copies could be made because to hire um, uh, a local artist in Boston uh, would have taken more time and um, was not also seen as aesthetically as interesting as these kind of reverse paintings on glass that were being done. So the style and also expense and um, the panache of the the, uh, distinction of having Chinese made porcelains and the latest porcelain, Um, set on your dining room table, those were signs of distinction that gave one a lot of prestige. I'll just tell you a quick story, which is in the research I've done. I mean, my, an earlier book called New York before Chinatown, little plug there. Um, I was looking at George Washington in the heat of the Revolutionary War in New York. And here he is fighting the British, right? Fighting for their lives. And in the middle of that, at his headquarters, He's checking with his local China, so called Chinaman, who is not Chinese, but the local British merchant who's operating in the Lower East Side, not the Lower East Side, but the um, the, the docks on the west side, uh, on the uh, east side uh, below Chinatown. He was checking with that Chinaman for what the latest uh, uh, sets of porcelain that he could get for his headquarters uh, table, right? So this kind of desire for it's a real uh, British
0: officer right there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, for, right. So, so that Anglo-American kind of culture, um, is very much, uh, transferred, um, into even at the height of war, uh, and the, the development of American independence and identity. Uh, these Chinese luxury goods are a uh, a way to express one's gentlemanliness and one's civilizationness and one's ability to be as good as that British general who's who you're fighting, right? So that's pretty deep, right? In terms of the yeah. formation of American culture. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: amazing. Like yeah. the, the British are coming and he's like, hold on. I'm uh, I'm ordering porcelain from China. Yeah. Give me a give me a little time.
2: Exactly. And now, yeah. something like that, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, well, the, he must have known he was going to win. Priorities. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, this has been amazing.
0: Yeah. Um so I know we're running short on time here, so just really quickly, Jack, could you tell us I I read that you're you're working your latest work is around climate change um and that you're also working on the commemoration of the centennial of the second um international eugenics conference that was held at the uh museum of natural history in in new york city um do you want to say a few words about that what what, what how does how do how, how is this being commemorated and and um can people go see stuff and read stuff etc
2: yeah no thanks i appreciate your mentioning that so the third project i'm also working on as i'm working with Uh, Muncie-speaking Lenape people who are part of north of the Raritan, for those of you in New Jersey, um, those who are still in the area, and there are very many people who are still alive. So just to counter the myth that those people Mm -hmm. are no longer here. Um, So for me, uh, I'll was—I try to be really quick in this story. I was on the uh, New York City Mayor's Monuments Commission, and uh, in the discussions about Teddy Roosevelt and Columbus and everything else, uh, going back and forth, um, some of us were saying that without understanding the New York City history and the history of the region of the dispossession of the people who were here before, but also enslavement to actually provide a grounding for this statue, that statue, what's the relationship historically to all these different kinds of civic monuments and markers and public art, right? Without that, we actually are kind of lost. We'd have all these, all these monuments are just kind of floating out of nowhere. It just depends on who notices them or what what story we tell about them, right? So that's why the the purchase of Manhattan, the Dutch purchase of Manhattan, is still such a, a dominant kind of folklore about the origins of our city, when in fact it really was grounded in dispossession and enslavement, you know? So... So um, so first of all, my hist- my, the work I've been doing of, around the China trade and anti-Asian violence and fear and all this kind of stuff has to be grounded in that. In other words, when you're looking for beaver pelts, you're trading it to somewhere. And it just so happens that China really wanted those beaver pelts, right? So part of the extraction process was also going somewhere. So the dispossession of land the laborers that were brought in to uh, be really make the profits and to really force um, quote-unquote inferior human beings to basically um, to help you make those profits uh, was also linked to how Asians in Asian bodies were picking tea in southern China, were manufacturing these luxury goods that the West wanted so much. So that trade was also linked to racialization in the way that... Asians became increasingly identified with things. So Chinese people were not really seen or experienced so much directly, but Chinese things were experienced in everyday life, right? So by linking that, we actually have the grounding of what the history of the region is, because it happened in our region. The very first ship of the new nation that went to trade with China left New York Harbor in 1783, right? So the history is all there but it's not understood as interlinked. So part of it is that it's needs to be interlinked, but also when, um, you know, some, a new immigrant, Italian immigrant arrives and settles in union city, New Jersey, for example, and they, they work hard. They, they're honest laborers. They get their little plot of land in this region. They don't, think of themselves as being part of the land of the region, but they think of themselves as owning that little parcel of land and keeping up the property values of their house. So they don't actually connect up with what's happening in terms of global warming and climate change, in terms of the larger region in which we're in bad shape right now. And that climate clock is, is uh, six years uh, and 200 and some days. I mean, before the greater convergence of these effects uh, begin to cascade uh, and uh, disruptions start building on top of each other right so we've been through some serious disruptions really clear we know that with the sea change and the, the greater frequency of major storms coming up from um, from the caribbean and disrupting our areas and flooding the shorelines um, and uh, very hot uh, summers and some very warm winters you know all those kinds of phenomena and now, you know, the pandemic, they're all kind of happening, but they're happening a little bit in sequence. But increasingly, I think we're seeing an acceleration of these things happening, not just nationally, but also globally, but also regionally. So things are starting to kind of accelerate in terms of the impacts of disruption in any one given area. So for me, I think part of the difficulty of our grappling with global warming is also because we're so compartmentalized by group, by the parcel of land we're on, but also by you know whether we identify primarily as one group or another. And we tend to think of, well, they're causing this problem. You know? So the scapegoating there is. So when I go to do my recycling, uh, people say, well, so they're saying, well, we're not taking plastics anymore. Well, why aren't you taking plastics? Well, it's because China's not taking our plastic anymore. Right. So the problem is China, (laughs) not the fact that we haven't come up with our own recycling system within the United States to deal with the plastics that we're consuming like crazy. Right. Now, it's not to say that China doesn't have real problems. They're not contributing to lots of global issues. But the but the same mentality of scapegoating or projecting our problems and not taking full responsibility for what we're doing gets projected onto some other uh, as the reason why we still have our problems, right? So that phenomena happens in a variety of ways, but we have to just stop it. You know, I mean, we just have to stop it and say that, wait a minute, we've got to take responsibility for what we're doing in our region, right? And start, um, I think if we can get to that point, then we have the possibility of not just having, waiting for the government to come up with some solution or some magic technology that comes out of sci-fi pulp novels, you know, to come up with a solution, but then we, as as people who are of the region, can de- actually become come together and come up with solutions and how to deal with things. So, so, um, so I think these are all unrelated. But I think the question of the political culture of um, not really being grounded in some kind of reality and understanding of science, of of, of um, the pluses and minuses of technology, of how we need to. Um, uh, really come together as a society, you know, um, those kinds of questions that we, that of course have been exposed during the pandemic, right. Um, th- that, it just raises the kinds of challenges that we have to then rise up to in terms of really handling, uh, the pandemic, but also global warming. Right. Uh, so that's how I see it as all, is all connected and the, um, the, the Congress that's happening and, um, that the second international eugenics Congress that happened in 1921 at the American Museum of Natural History was at the time in which New York City was ground zero to the international eugenics movement. And this involves um, the eugenics record office on Long Island. uh, And it involves Um, the head of the president and senior curator at the American Museum of Natural History. It involves uh, some of the founders of the New York Zoological Society. And it was really a broad kind of cultural movement in which they're trying as progressives to solve the problems of the Gilded Age, the problems of massive numbers of immigration, mainly European immigrants coming in, and how to organize and order society in a way that can actually uh, be managed, right? So eugenics uh, set up a very sophisticated system of who could be measured to be fit and who could be measured to be unfit. Um, And they measured noses, the body shapes, uh, IQs, all that kind of stuff. And it was really a dangerous movement. And we only know of the worst excesses that resulted in the death camps we actually don't understand how those forms of profiling and systematic differentiation actually continue to this day in terms of how systems are organized and how organizations are organized. So sociologists of organization are looking at how these things happen. So we're trying to have it be an occasion in which we can kind of have it as a mirror to understand um, how eugenics has continued to have an impact to this day, other than the kind of horrible stuff that we associate with the death camps.
0: Fantastic. Um, I cannot wait to see. I'm I'm assuming this will be on websites and from coming up from maybe Rutgers. Um, Could you could you tell us where to go for this?
2: Yeah, well, uh, we're setting it up now, um, Mm -hmm. but there'll be ten days of convenings. Some of the days will be at the American Museum of Natural History itself in the very rooms that that wow. original uh, <laughs> Congress happened. Um, we're really happy that the American Museum of Natural History wants to reckon with its own involvement and its own past in this way. And it's really a moment in which lots of the institutions in the city, but also the region, uh, can come to some kind of reckoning in terms with their own involvement in these ways of organizing and, and funding and, and uh, operating. So I think it's really a chance to, um, for all of those of us who have been impacted by eugenics policies, which just is about everybody, really. You know, I mean, we're all going to be disabled. We're all disabled in one way or another. And disabilities is kind of one of the big categories that eugenics was really saying, well, if you're disabled, you're gonna be put into an institution because you're not a productive member of society anymore. right? So we're all affected by this. Uh, so it'll be a chance for us to kind of come to some kind of sobering recognition with uh, how the political culture has actually continued to operate. So it's connected to all these things I'm talking about in that way.
0: Well, Jack, thank you so much. This is, I knew this was going to be really enlightening. And man, was it? Um, Indeed, thank you, Jack. went all over the world um, and, and, and then into the deep history of the region as well. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, and we look forward uh, to following your work.
2: Great, thank you. It's really, really great talking to both of you. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Jack. OK, that was a massive crash course in
0: yeah. Asian history, Asian history, global history. And what you realize, you know, the is, is goes back to the British. Well, a lot of it does. But I mean, uh, his larger point that, you know, this ordering the the perception the way we it's this hard thing, right? That human beings, we have to like order the world and make these categories to navigate yeah. it. Otherwise, it's a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then those categories take on a life of their own and then become oppressive, right? Yep. Um, but when we work with the categories, we forget that everything's connected, right? That's what his book is so good because it just shows like he puts documents together that you wouldn't think should be together or, or like even just images and a document or a, or a quotation even. And then suddenly you actually think about it for a second, and you realize, oh yeah. wow, there's so many points of interconnection. So I well, think we'll that came some, true when he was talking.
1: Yeah, and we'll put some some of his stuff will be on our next newsletter. He's going to send yeah. us a couple um, things people can read if if you want to get more involved and, and learn some of what he does. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. All right. Um. Okay. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter, please do. Um. I post it on our Instagram, and I'm gonna post on Facebook. But um. Yeah. It's uh. It's pretty great, and we're. Wow, i'm just putting a, a ton into this and it's
0: yeah it's npdt no politics at the dinner table uh dot substack dot com so all you got to do is hop on there plug in your email address it's free you'll get it once a week it's a 10 minutes or less read every yep. sunday morning so great no politics at the dinner table is produced by amit prakash
1: tunes by jeep betaroy um yeah subscribe tell your friends rate us five stars or whatever amount of amazing stars you can give us. And um, we'll see you next week.